how well have your client relationships fared against the almighty test that was 2020? With research suggesting that 68% of customers that we lose would cite perceived indifference as their reason, have you lost any customers by not remaining close enough to them? Perhaps not understanding what they really needed from you during the stormy waters of the pandemic. Perhaps you were led by political rhetoric and generalisations which suggested that everyone was facing financial ruin, leading you to discount and offer concessions through compassion. Did your strategy pay off or have you damaged the relationship, missing the need for confidence, clarity and clear leadership? In a time of hyper-adaptation, what changes did you make in the way you manage your customers that will stand the test of time, pay back in dividends and cement customer loyalty? And which changes will be reversed at the earliest opportunity? The turn of the year gives us a chance to reflect and look at what went well and how we can improve even more. Before Christmas, I spoke with Jermaine Edwards, multi-business owner and founder of Customer Mastery and the Irreplaceable Advisory Group. With over 10 years in sales, sales leadership and customer growth management, Jermaine now spends his time being invited by companies around the world like Gartner, Dell Technologies, London Business School and GE to create unique customer growth and loyalty strategies which make them irreplaceable in their market. To date, Jermaine has helped his clients uncover more than $250 million in new and undiscovered revenue from existing customers. When we spoke, I was keen to understand his take on why we may have lost important clients during the pandemic. What should we do to improve the retention of key accounts and why he believes that retention is the wrong mindset? And how a blame culture and siloed working internally leads to a real risk in external relationships. Welcome to CamCast. I'm your host, David Ventura, a key account management consultant at camguru.com. In this podcast, we explore the strategies, systems, and skills you need for effective key account management. We talk to expert guests and business leaders, sharing the tips, tactics, and techniques for looking after your most important customers. This is Key Account Management Made Easy. So, Jermaine Edwards, thank you so much for joining us here today on CamCast. As with all of our chats, I think we can really get stuck into some big conversation about what's going on in the world of account management, the world of building strategic mm. partnerships, trusted partnerships with our most important customers. We've experienced, as everyone has, such a roller coaster of a year. And in that roller coaster of a year, it would be fair to say that along the way, we will have lost some of our customers. And here we are, sort of at the start of a new year. And, you know, I want to reflect, I guess, in terms of why have we lost those customers beyond the obvious reasons. It would be a bit flippant to say, you know, the reason that we've lost customers is because of the pandemic and maybe, you know, organizations have had hard times and, and we were the first people to cut or they've just tried to get a cheaper deal somewhere else. That Those would be easy excuses, easy reasons. It'd be interesting to hear from you what your thoughts are on the real reasons. What are, what are the top reasons why in 2020 organizations lost their most important accounts? Yeah, so this is perhaps going to be more of a, a complex answer. But I do think there are some real insights that we can glean from what we saw throughout the kind of pandemic year as it as it were of 2020 and also we saw that it literally transformed the way every single business viewed themselves their markets their own position their customers overnight every business was forced to adapt very very quickly and so with that word adapt i'd say 
primarily what I was seeing and what we were seeing as the largest disruption for businesses was their inability or exposure of their business to be able to respond to change easily and quickly. And so let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So right from the beginning, all of a sudden, all businesses that were pretty much delivering most of their services offline in an analog way with very little digitization or any kind of transformation around a virtual service was forced to have to think about that as part of their infrastructure in their business. And those customers that were still requiring their services and could not do something face-to-face immediately went to those and look for those services elsewhere that could deliver it in a new unique way that maintains the sense of quality of delivery and service. And those companies that could not adapt fast enough lost customers fairly quickly. So that's that's one thing. But I think what happened also throughout the pandemic is that it exposed the relationships that people had with their customers. All of a sudden, those relationships you thought were pretty strong, where those commitments you thought were there and were pretty robust, all of a sudden collapsed immediately where people began, or particularly customers, began to see services as either needs or wants. And so you became either a need-based business or a want-nice-to-have business. And a lot of people got caught out and simply fell into the category of a kind of a want-nice-to-have and not a fundamental need to have you around in our organization. And so people got caught out on their business model, they got caught out on the relationships and the equity of those relationships, the strength of those relationships, the value behind those relationships, but also got caught out in the recognition that their services just weren't good enough to survive the speed of change and shifting needs and expectations and requirements of their customers. And so you saw this mass exodus of companies saying, look, we're either going to defer you or they're going to completely deny any further work or we're simply going to put you into this particular bucket of your want-based customers when we have the need. But when that time comes back to evaluate you, we're now going to evaluate you not on what was done before, but what what the world is today and what we actually need now from our, our suppliers and partners moving forward. And those expectations, nobody really understood or knew what they were because of the way the change was happening. And so immediately people started to make concessions when actually what customers needed was leadership. They needed to be supported and led by their partners, not given necessarily concessions in monetary form immediately. And that was some big mistakes. Now companies are really paying for that, yeah, offering concessions too quickly. I think you know, we, we talk about adaptation. There's, there's two, I suppose, questions that come to mind. And one, I guess, is about the size of an organization and its ability to adapt. In, in our experience, I think a lot of clients that were in smaller organizations, smaller teams, smaller service delivery models, smaller sort of customer base, they, they were able to adapt, react, and I don't want to say it 
pivot, (laughs) that sort of buzzword for 2020. They were able to do that adaptation really easily because they were small enough. And yet some of the larger organizations, which you'd think would have the backing, the money, the wherewithal, the the innovation just couldn't get there quick enough. Is is that something that you've seen? Is there a correlation between size of business and ability to adapt? I I think there is, but I don't want to be too, too deterministic around size. But we do, we do recognize that within the nature of the small business economy, small businesses will have a unique advantage to be able to shift their business model more quickly because there are fewer infrastructures, fewer overheads, fewer assets that they're kind of burning away, and they can really kind of downsize quickly. Now, that's, that's one level of adaptation, which is reduce in size in order to increase quality or the the new introduction of services. I think there are different kinds of adaptations that will give varying different opportunities. So for example, if you're a larger company and you decided to, to make that happen, you can discount to the point in which you could destroy a market. So in one sense, bigger companies will have a certain kind of marginal advantage that small businesses may not have. So small businesses will not necessarily have a billion dollars in cash reserves to kind of throw at a customer for a short period of time. So those cost adaptations may not be there. Then you have service structural adaptations, meaning the digital infrastructure that you have to deploy new services or create new services, the talent that you have to do that. Those things also make a difference. So Equally, small businesses can have those kinds of advantages available to them to redeploy different services, talent that they may have in the business. But both a large company and a small business may be at equal footing in those areas. And if you have a big company that has, one, a cost advantage, meaning they can reduce their cost to zero for a certain amount of time and ride that wave for a longer period of time in the small business, and over 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 time, that business, small business, is going to, is not not going to win out. So those things are really important to consider. And actually, I'll be looking looking forward to looking back at the data and seeing just what made the difference between those smaller businesses and larger businesses as well. Do you think there was almost an assumption made by many organisations that what was needed in terms of adaptation was that, as you said, the cost adaptation, that's what was needed to change. We needed to make things more accessible from a cost point of view. And perhaps that was because we didn't understand what structure or what sort of service change, service adaptation was needed for the customer. And maybe the customer also didn't know what they needed to change. So there was all this unknown around what is the change? We need change. We, we desperately need change. So, you know, it, it's the old definition of insanity, isn't it? You know, do the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And we that, that became so important, I think, during this time that we needed to adapt and cost seemed like the obvious one. Was there that level of assumption, do you think? I think for some people it was, because I think the natural place that we went to empathetically was that everybody's in trouble, we're all trying to help each other out. And a natural place of pain was from a financial perspective. So I could understand you know, practically, pragmatically for partners and customers, suppliers, that we would seek to meet each other fairly at that place of financial understanding. The challenges, and I think still is for many organizations moving into the new year, 
is if you begin trying to solve a, a particular problem with a financial one, when actually it's much more of an organizational systemic one, then all you're doing is throwing a whole bunch of sticky, sticky plasters onto a gaping hole that, that is a particular problem. So the problem wasn't necessarily that businesses needed to get financial access immediately. What they found over this period of time is that what they really needed was support in, in the ability to make decisions. And it made, what made the decisions really difficult to do was that, the unfortunately, uh, we had governments that were very unclear about the business certainty of what was going to happen in particular markets. That's what killed confidence. And that's what caused the drive for that financial conversation to be first. Not necessarily that people needed to have that first, but because they were so unclear about what the markets were going to do. Now, my belief, and this is what I did with my customers, is the, the immediate place that we went to was not necessarily to where can we make concessions for you? The point here was asking ourselves the question, where are the places that your customers need help the most? And where can we partner with you to do that? And so what we ended up doing, we did three things during the pandemic, which we thought was pretty interesting. One, we did some crowdfunding for particular customers that were in difficult positions. And we did that jointly together. Two, we actually got two of my customers to invest in a new technologies company that we deployed to actually support with their own digital deployment of services. And the third thing we did is we actually redeployed new assets. So we actually got some of their, their talent from their side working on projects for us, and we actually shared resources. So we actually had, for a period of time, actually a couple of people who were junior in their business, in the client's business, actually working in my own company and we were paying their wages and part of their wages for a period of time, but using those assets and talents to build certain parts of the business. So there were so many different avenues, but we were unable to get ourselves out of the, the financial trap because we were being led by, unfortunately, rather than being led by what our customers need, we're being led by what governments were asking us to think about. And that was a really dangerous place for us to be. And I think that was a, a, pro, well, a, a real driver behind why finance came up so quickly. And the key thing there, of course, is empathy. You know, you've mentioned it a few times there when, when you're speaking. Empathy, of course, is the ability to stand in someone else's shoes. Mm -hmm. um, I one of the, the phrases that kind of grated on me at the start of the pandemic was that people were saying a lot, you know, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. And it was really grating on me because I was thinking, it's not true. We're, we're not all in the same boat. No. We're all in the same storm. We're all in different boats. Yes. And actually, the, the real empathy was the ability to jump into someone else's boat and see what was going on for them. And, you know, the simplest and, and easiest way to do that with a customer, of course, is just ask the question, what is it that you need right now? <laughs> you know, because yeah. the answer might have been we need cost reduction. And yet, in reality, the answer was probably a whole bunch of other stuff that we would only know if we asked the question. So the questions have got to be there. Uh, you know, I, I would say if you 
ask most salespeople, what's the biggest reason that you've lost a client? You know, even in normal times, what's the biggest reason that clients would move their business elsewhere? Most salespeople would probably have price high up on their list, right? If not mm. top of their list. And yet we know from research that it's it's not that way. There was one piece of research that suggested that 9% of customers would leave because of price-related issues, whilst 68% fell in the term of, you know, perceived indifference. You know, they felt like the customer, they, they felt like the organization didn't care enough about yeah. them. That perceived indifference was the reason they went elsewhere. Neglect and indifference has got to have featured highly on on the reasons throughout the pandemic. I, I imagine that whilst everyone's swimming around in their own waters and, and trying to stay in, uh, keep their own boat afloat, it's really difficult to remember that the customers need talking to as well. It, it, you know, How's that been uh, with your clients? How have you, what have you noticed on, on that front? Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's a beautiful kind of picture that you just uh, offered there, particularly around empathy and being somebody else's boat. So I'll state two things here. One, so one of the things that actually made the biggest difference when I see my customers respond to directly was shifting their conversations with their customers. You know, from, again, the word commercial conversations is something that comes up often, but actually looking at kind of reinvestment strategies. And what I mean by that is once they've understood and you've actually taken the actual steps to ask thoughtful, very poignant questions that allow you to uncover where a person really is, what they need, and really exploring where some of the root cause challenges may be with them. Uh, what we want to do is start to reinvest in more creative ways. And so what we found were customers were saying, okay, let's problem solve with you. And if you're open to it, it's possible there may be seven other ways and one of those ways may be concessions and supporting you financially that we may be able to explore together. Are you willing to do some reinvestment around that? And what we found is that most people were open to having those kinds of conversations because people were just looking for leadership. People were looking to be told, look, it's, it's, it's not, not necessarily just going to be okay, but actually I think there's a way for us to think through this in a different way that would give us a new kind of advantage. So it's not just about change, it's whether or not the change is actually giving you some kind of advantage. Because if you're just changing for uh, to react to something that you, is painful, what would tend to happen is that you'll miss what the consequences are of that pain later on. And so you have to solve for the consequence and not just the pain right now. And so those conversations around just thinking about what is need, what are some of those reinvestment opportunities, sitting and really thinking about those options together, we found that most organizations were open to that, but most people just weren't asking the questions. And the key to avoiding assumption is understanding. Yes. And understanding only happens when we have conversations. So I think that the key thing for me there and what you're saying is that we, we've got to be having those conversations with our clients to avoid the the poison that is assumption 
in the relationship and we've got to have those that that open dialogue otherwise we're we're not going to stand half a chance of finding out what they need and then the next step of course being able to service that need we've sort of touched on a few thoughts there around how do we avoid losing customers because of these reasons if a client was saying to you now Jermaine I'm, I'm losing customers left right and center I think I know the reasons but I just need three top tips for retaining customers give me three tips that will help me batten down the hatches and, and stop the hemorrhaging what would you give them as your three tips yeah I think the first is a, a, a mindset change around retention so i'd say stop trying to think retention and start thinking about how i can be irreplaceable so i think what we don't want to do is to begin to try to operate from the place of fear and we want to operate from the place of of value um, for an organization i think oftentimes we'll fool ourselves into believing that what we're trying to do is to offer value from a place of value but what it's coming from is actually a place of fear and so we need to first of all just Take a step back and asking yourself the question. This might be kind of a, an odd question to ask, but why is it that we actually want to retain this customer? Is it because we believe we can actually deliver a much better and much higher quality service than anybody else? Is it because if we if we don't, we fear that we're going to lose out on something specific? Is it because we we genuinely believe that there are some things in the relationship directly that if the customer actually walked away, they'd significantly lose something um, that they uh, they couldn't get anywhere else. What are some of those reasons for that retention? And starting from that place, because it actually will define how you think about the things that you put in place. Because what we don't want is for our customers to say, hey, I'll stay because of the concessions you've just made. We want them to stay because they never want to leave because of who you are and not just what you do. So if I've started from that place, there are here are a couple of strategies that I'd say start with. If you're trying to become not somebody who's retaining customers, but becoming irreplaceable is to start number one with expectations. Expectations are, are huge. So let me explain what I mean by when I say expectations. So what I'm saying is that expectations between you, that there's a, a known, uh, highly sought after and a trusted, responsive relationship that is committed to by both of you. And if you don't believe right now that with your companies, with your company and those customers, that you have something that's highly sought after and valued by the other person that is trusted and committed to, and there's some demonstrations around that, then what I'd be looking to do immediately is to reset expectations of the relationship and beginning to establish clear kind of almost like codes of conduct. Like how do we actually want to do this relationship together? What's really going to make it thrive? And beginning from that place, beginning from that place of reshaping the relationship. And then what I'd say, and this is going to be again counterintuitive, but I'd say have a really clear vision for your customer a really clear vision for what you want the outcome to be for that customer both from a relationship point of view from an impact point of view from a services point of view and then begin with that end in mind and say well in order for that to be true for us to deliver that for the customer based on what we know about them today and what they may need in the future what now would our services business our teams need to look like and be able to do practically intellectually from a skill and behavior point of view to achieve that with and for the customer 
So begin at that place. Really get a clear vision of what you want to deliver for that customer and then begin from that place. The last thing I'd say is to ensure that we're leading from the front and the side with the customer. So what I mean by that is what we want to do is be bringing what we call preactive conversations to the customer. We need to be talking about future things so we're seeding future commitments. So we're going to be talking about how we're going to achieve X together three, six, 12 months from now that is exciting to the customer, that is highly valuable to the customer, and ultimately impacts multiple varying different stakeholders within that business. When you're preactive, talking about how you can do things into the future, then what you do, you come alongside the customer and then you say, here's how we'd like to support you on that journey and get them to buy in with you on taking those particular steps. But I say, if you begin with that in mind, just shifting the mindset slightly, instead of retention, say, how do we become irreplaceable? Uh, and then going to think about those expectations, start thinking about what the vision is, and then start to think about, okay, well, what would need to be true preactively in the future based on what we want with the customer? How do we draw that back in? How do we support and lead them, lead with them at the side? And how do we lead from the front with the customer? I think you're being good, good standing from there. I love, I love obviously the language about becoming irreplaceable. I know you, you talk a lot about that and it is a mindset shift. You know, we're, we're talking on today's show all about losing a customer. Actually to become irreplaceable mean that means that losing a customer isn't the option, right? Yeah. We can fall out with them, but we're still not leaving each other. You know, well, yeah. it's a bit like a marriage, right? You, you can have a row with each other, but you know, you're going to make up uh, at the end of it. Fingers crossed. We, we, we hope, <laughs> but, but it's the, the irreplaceable bit is taking leaving off the table um, mm. and having those difficult conversations, perhaps a bit more out in the, in the open. Going back to the topic, I guess, of, of losing customers. I think, you know, in my experience, with many organizations, when we lose a customer, people are often on the warpath. They want to find out what went wrong and in particular, whose fault it was. You know, we, we want to lay the blame at someone's door here. How do we move away from that? Because, because I do think we need to, you know, you know, from, from talking with me that one of our key principles at Cam Guru is that, you know, key account management is a team sport. It's not a lone ranger activity and the team is the business. It's everyone who plays a part in looking after that customer and servicing that customer, growing yeah. that account. It's not on the shoulders of one person. So how do we move away from this lame culture that we often see when the bad stuff happens, when the proverbial hits the fan, if you like, and uh, we end up seeing one of our customers sailing off into the sunset with, uh, with a competitor? How do we avoid the blame? Yeah, well, one thing, it, it sounds you know, like a, okay, a recurring disc, but it does start at the top. Um, I won't start, kind of stop there necessarily. It starts at the top and there is a, it needs to be a, a culture of, we all own the customer outcome. And that's really easy to say. I recognize that. But I think ultimately when you, you have something that's happened with the customer, we should never make a permanent decision in a temporary problem. Like whatever's happening there is a temporary problem uh, that we all need to really work out together. But unfortunately, businesses are making these permanent decisions and blaming 
And what they're doing is they're perpetuating a cycle of decision-making that is not about how we discover, how we learn, uh, how we uh, begin to take that learning and turn that into strategic insight for us. They're putting in these particular decision-making, I guess, cadences inside their business that are causing other people from a toxic perspective to now begin to have permission to point and blame their colleagues and other departments. It's marketing's fault, it's customer support's fault, it's technical services support. Um, that is a, a culture that is that's permeated by a lack of leadership and accountability and responsibility at the top for stating to the business that we all own the customer. And so what I've often given as an example is that particularly when it comes to customer culture, it's like a smoke detector. And so, but the leader is the alarm. So once, once the culture starts to get really messy, the leader is the alarm of that smoke kind of filling the room. But if the leader isn't aware that there's smoke in the house, what's going to happen is you'll, you'll start to eventually smell that the smoke is there. Uh, long enough, you'll begin to see all the behaviors come up. And left long enough, everybody's going to start choking on it. And some of the signs of people choking on it is blame. And so the moment you get to that, for me, that is a huge red signal for any business. If you get persistent, consistent blame in a business, you are at choking level hazards inside that organization and real danger of causing more harm uh, than good. And those things will definitely you'll see that so often fear-based management of customers no shared customer vision relationship and value assumptions all these types of things that come with that when you do not have a customer-centered culture it's the same equivalent of smoke being in the room and no one knowing exactly where anybody is where the exit is or how even to get from one place to the other I love the analogy of uh, of the smoke detector there, um, and of course, blame being that choking hazard. With the analogy of the smoke detector, the assumption there is that that smoke detector is going off, right? The, if blame is about, there's a blame culture, the, the, the lights are flashing, the sound, the siren's going, and we all know that we're about to choke or we need to get out of here. Let me throw something else at you, a different angle to that. What if What if blame wasn't smoke, but rather carbon monoxide? It was invisible. And the reason I say invisible is that maybe some of that blame culture is said in private. It's behind our back. It's muttered under their breath. It's it's sort of poisonous behind the scenes and not necessarily visible to the leader. And if it were carbon monoxide, you know, do we need a carbon monoxide alarm system in place? A lot of places will will have that. I know we've got one just sat above our, our fridge to let us know if there's any higher levels of carbon monoxide going on in the house. But um, it's the invisible gas. It's the invisible thing that we might not be able to see, but we do need that alarm system. We need something that's going to let us know that that's happening what 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 is the the i suppose what's the carbon monoxide alarm for blame in business that's the question i guess i don't know what the answer is yeah i don't have an immediate answer for that either i, I think per organization it may look slightly different i had a particular company this uh year I was working with where they had real i mean just real problems with interdepartmental work and cooperation and coordination of working with internally to support specific customer outcomes. And every time a support request came in, somebody was saying, this isn't mine. 
this is yours. Or if a customer complained about something directly, it was, hey, this person didn't send this to me on time. And what we actually found, if we're talking about the kind of the alarm bells, is number one, the first thing is whether or not the departmental manager, a real key is whether or not the departmental managers actually get along and are communicating often. If those things aren't happening, we found that to be the case. Those people, if that isn't happening, one that they get along, they have an amicable service-based relationship that is centered around a core customer philosophy and they're communicating often, you often get dissension happening and kind of a them and us approach. So that's the, the actual first alarm piece here, are do managers actually get along? Yeah, it's because silos um, need to be visible. Don't oh, they? Yeah. You know, we, we hear this language all the time. We've got silos in our organization. There's too many silos. What does that look like? It looks like heads of department not talking to each other. Heads of department not bothering to show up to departmental, interdepartmental meetings and things like that. I guess that's what you what you see. Um, the the other thing I guess that you know what springs to mind when when we talk about this is this idea of more peer to peer accountability. And peer to peer accountability starts with one of your points, of course, is expectation. What do we expect of each other? So what do we expect if if one of the team is stepping out of line and saying behind someone else's back that they blame them for something? What's the expectation on everyone that hears that? What, what, what do we expect them? Are we expecting them to tell us to call that other person out? You know, what, what is the peer-to-peer accountability expectation? And maybe that is part of the answer. Yeah, so I, I really like that. I think if, if you have a particular business that is open enough for feedback, and I think that's what we're talking about here is the ability to, to give feedback in a also whatever context or format that is and at whatever level and i think that's important at whatever level that needs to take place and unfortunately you're going to have and find the different ways in which these feedback loops take place i think hr needs to play a role here but ultimately that particular place of consequence management or how we feedback as a business those learning loops of and the cadence of communication Again, starts back at the top. Look, what kind of organization do we want to be internally that is able to express externally excellence in all areas of our business for a customer? And if you're not asking those questions or have a view of what that may look like at an individual level, then it's unlikely those things are going to take place. I had an example of this early last year where we simply took departments for an exercise and we asked them the question, what do you believe your department is responsible for when it comes to meeting the needs and exceeding the needs of your customers in this business? And what's interesting is that what we're expecting to hear was kind of dissension and perhaps, oh, it's not my responsibility. But for this particular company, it was different. They all expressed it's you know, slightly nuanced, but very similar things around adding value to the customer. The challenge was other departments didn't know that's how they felt. Well, that's how they actually thought about their role in the organization. Now, once we showed and we had got everybody in the room and we showed them that actually, hey, you know what? Finance believes this about the customer. Operations, um, support, you actually all believe the same thing. For some reason, we seem to think that we're all against each other when actually you're all fighting for the same thing. And they'd never been put into the room and been exposed to each other's beliefs or things that they've been driven to. 
I think this is where the danger of these silos come in, where you begin to place stories in your mind of what the other side is doing or thinking or plotting against you to sabotage your work and make you look bad. When actually, if you ask each other the same questions, you'll find that you're all are trying to fight for the same thing. And, we're, and we've got a repeating theme here. It's about asking the questions, having the conversation, yeah. talking about what your expectations are of each other, whether that's internal or whether that's external. But, it, but it's really all about asking the right questions. It's time for the CamCast Killer Question. We're talking about questions. Jermaine, as you know, one of the regular segments of Camcast is the killer question. If I could perhaps put you on the spot now and, and say, Go you know, it. if you had one question that our listeners could be reflecting on, and, and we're at a very, you know, we're recording this at a time, we're about to turn over into a new year. It's been a hell of a year and it, the reflection is key, right? At the start of the year, people do tend to want to reflect about what's going well, what could be better if. What would your question for our listeners be that will get them reflecting about what's going on with their key accounts in their business? Whew, man, so many questions come to mind. Maybe I'll go with this. So today, as as wherever you are right now, whatever part of the year you're listening to this particular podcast, do you, your team, your department, your business have a known, understood, practiced and proven way for generating phenomenal relationship revenue and retention results within your business with your most important customers and if that those things aren't true for you this is a great opportunity for you to sit down go across departments and get a shared understanding of what those specific practices and principles might be to move you to a phenomenal becoming a phenomenal business and producing phenomenal results for your customers Camcast, key account management made easy. Jermaine, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Camcast. I could talk to you forever. I think there's there's so much value that we can learn from each other and also from our experience with with clients. If anyone wants to get in touch with you and find out more about what you do, what's what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so many different ways. So I'd say go to jermaineedwards.com as the first. Jermaine Edwards on LinkedIn. You'll find me immediately. I'm only worth one worth looking at on LinkedIn. But uh, apart from that, yeah, jamaineers.com, you'll find it immediately. Range of different content, so many different beautiful things coming your way for definitely commercial leaders who are looking to move the needle in their organization. I'm going to have all the other Jermaine Edwards on LinkedIn now now ringing up <laughs> saying, uh, well, who is this guy and why is he slagging us all off? But I'd agree, <laughs> Jermaine Edwards on, uh, on LinkedIn if you want to connect and find out more. Jermaine, thanks so much for joining us today on Camcast. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So in a year where we were all in the same storm, but all in different boats, did you take enough time to understand what your customers needed from you to support them as they navigated the uncertainty? Did you embrace hyper adaptation? And what did you learn? It was great to hear from Jermaine his thoughts on customer retention. And I really love the notion of changing the mindset from retention to becoming irreplaceable. Asking ourselves this important question first, why do we want to retain this customer? And then being intentional in our activity from there on in. He underlined the importance of setting two-way expectations, having a clear vision for the customer relationship and becoming future-focused in your conversations to cement future commitments. 
With blame being a choking hazard in business, it's important to be constantly on the lookout for the telltale signs of a blame culture. Deciding what kind of organisation we want to be internally will determine how we express ourselves externally. To become an irreplaceable advisor really would take the customer leaving us off the table. Coming up on the next episode of Camcast, we have the speaker, best-selling author and customer experience expert Jay Bear joining us. You really don't want to miss this one. We'll be talking to him about the benefits of creating what Jay calls talk triggers, the irresistible thing that you do for your customers, which they can't help talking about to everyone that they meet. I'll be asking him how businesses can avoid stating boring features and benefit bullet points on their website and rather create juicy, transformative customer experience stories told by their customers at dinner parties and networking events. How do we turn customers into raving fans and then into the goldmine of volunteer marketers? Jay adds so much value, so you really don't want to miss this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Camcast, a podcast brought to you by camguru.com, one of the UK's leading key account management consulting and training organizations. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate you sharing it with your connections, giving us a review on your chosen podcast app and letting us know what else you'd like to hear in an upcoming episode. You can find the show notes for this episode on the website at camguru.com forward slash podcast.